volume on the computer down to 50 <clears throat> and close the door so that should be fine uh are we keeping all that in no that's definitely gonna get cut out okay there's a part of me just in my boxers we're not putting that on the internet i was going to say that's probably advisable unless tommy laren <laughs> likes that <laughs> do you because if you do, it can stay in there. <laughs> okay, so now we're keeping all this in. And welcome back to another episode of the Golden Hour Coffee Cast. <laughs> we are your hosts, Eric and Jesse. Uh, take two is always better than take one. This is true. Yeah. I don't know. Especially when the coffee kicks in. Yeah. Yeah, cough, the, coffee, cough. the coffee kicking in. <laughs> Oh man, I I love the chaotic energy of that episode. I, but here's the problem: we have to put our hearts in at like at serious risk in order to maintain that level of energy <laughs> between the two of this us. This is true. This is true. Like, so the average cup of coffee has a hundred milligrams of uh, caffeine per serving. Mm-hmm. I think Death Wish has something like a hundred and fifty milligrams of caffeine which isn't that crazy considering that you know like an energy drink excuse me an energy drink has like 200 milligrams of caffeine oh shit but and all that sugar Fuck. yeah but that's per serving bro i i like solo Ooh. carried like one and a half decanters full of death wish <laughs> coffee that night <laughs> Was that that night? I thought that was another recording. I thought that was like the the origin story, not the Christmas episode. No, 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 no. It was the Christmas episode because before we started recording the Christmas episode, we hung out and we drank a full decanter. Oh. We drank a full decanter and No, then I drank a full bed? decanter. Because you were and like then we, yeah, because you were like, "Oh, I have to take care of my vocal cords because no, I'm a that voice was, actor." That was definitely the origin story and not the Christmas episode. Either way, there were nights where I solo carried one and a half decanters yes. of fucking Death Wish. Yes. That was stupid, and I can prob- yeah, probably I will probably die very very young because of it. <laughs> I know, like, the ongoing meme is like, oh, man, I'm going to be dead by 40 because it's the tragic life of an artist. No, I don't actually want to die by 40. You have to stop me from drinking that much Death Wish, Jesse. Uh, We did not realize until the break, and that's when I brought it up. And now I can't see how much coffee you drank, so this is all on you, my friend. Yeah, this isn't coffee. Like, you can, it looks like coffee, right? Because it's all, like, dark and stuff. It's a Dr. Uh Pepper Zero. That flat? No, it's still fizzy. It sitting there, it's still fizzy. Oh, I didn't see any of the bubbles. Well, I mean, how the, the fuck are you going to see? How are you going to see carbonation on like this thing? I thought you were using a real camera, and not a webcam. No. 
Oh, okay. Then yeah, that we makes stand sense. together in solidarity when it comes <laughs> to this podcast, Jesse. If I am going to use a real camera, you're going to use a real camera. That's fair. Okay, and to be fair though, like the quality difference in my camera and your camera, uh, pretty fucked. Just comes down to lighting. <laughs> Maybe. No, it it actually does just come down to lighting because you're using your like house lights. Mm-hmm. I would take this thing and like point it towards the the actual like softbox thing that I have going on over here, but uh, that would fuck with the focus, and I don't want to deal with fixing the uh, focus on the yeah, camera. Yeah, that makes sense. But uh, I can drop off a light that you can use for the next episode, so that we can kind of match that. Okay. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah. Should uh, anyways. Shoutouts to uh, shoutouts to always using take two for this podcast. <laughs> How you doing, man? Everything look good? How oh, okay. Doing? I thought you were checking something out. Yeah. All right. All right. Not the worst. Definitely. It's still way too warm out. Yeah. It's like actually terrifying at this point. No, but global warming isn't real. Stop. Global warming. There's only ain't real. so much I can take. Global warming ain't real. Global warming. Yeah, global warming's only real because you're a sheep, Jesse. Uh let's not. Let's not get into all that business with the sheep and the sheeple. I'm all good. I hear that shit enough. I don't um, think you hear it enough because you're still a sheep. I don't, I don't want to bring that negative energy into this podcast, Eric, okay? This All right, is, you this listen is here, up. you little motherfucker. <laughs> the positive vibes, positive energy, that's my thing. That's my fucking thing, Jesse. You do not get to take that away from me. Eric, Eric, I'm going to need you to, like, calm down, all right? Like, you seem very tense. Uh, can I recommend going to the spa? You look so stupid with that fucking ball thing because it just covers yeah, your entire it's face. It's just a ball with an afro. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. How many subs is it going to take for for us to get you to um, grow that fro out and just bleach it? Like, how many subs no. do we need to hit? No. Not again. Not again. How many subs do we need to Not hit? Not again. It's not at. Mm-mm. Okay. Mm-mm. This is why we have 15 subs, Jesse. It's because you are refusing to commit to this bit. <laughs> How many subs do we need? I don't know. I don't know if I can, dude. My shit's like thinning. Okay, listen. All right. I've I've had enough of you blaming me for your hair thinning. It's not contagious. All right. It's not contagious. I was not blaming you this time. Yeah. Well, it's not contagious. Why? I wear a hat because my hair is thinning. I'm not taking this thing off. (laughs) All right. If I put this on, I still kind of look like I'm in my twenties. Right? That makes it worse. Though. I know it does. Okay, we seriously need to get eh. this. We, we eh. need to get this channel to like at least a thousand subs so that we can start monetizing the content. Because if you monetize the content, then I can go get hair plugs. <laughs> and then you guys can see Eric. If without I hat. don't have, if I don't get hair plugs, I'm never going to be able to date Tommy Laird. Do you guys want that? Do you guys want to take that away from me? She'll get the forehead envy. Monsters.
this is the one thing that I'm I'm gonna like really miss once we get back to recording in person. The microphone bit. The microphone bit. <laughs> you like I because you're using like a condenser mic, you don't mm-hmm. you don't feel the joy of just reaching off camera and then just pulling down the the microphone. <laughs> Because I'm especially sure, especially because of the ball thing, like it's not attached, so I need to bring the arm and like make sure that it doesn't fall off. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's just kind of balanced on there. Very precarious. There's no room for it. Yeah, but there's no room for it to like actually be held properly and steady, yeah. and then have everything still work great. Yeah. Um. There were there are a couple of like good things about not recording at your place right now one is the whole asbestos situation yeah um yeah definitely uh while like not peter francis one. while peter francis geraci is like a really close friend of mine um <laughs> i would rather not have to call him because i was affected by he's a friend by of chicago he's a friend of chicago area yeah. you can't claim him for yeah, yourself for sure um and then on He's top not of a that, person who lives here. And then on top of that, within the past like four days, I've had two COVID scares. Yeah, yeah, you have. Thankfully, um, I tested negative. The homie tested negative, so we're all we're all chilling. Yeah, but yeah, definitely a stressful couple of days. I yeah. Extremely Especially stressful. With your living situation. Yeah, yeah extremely 100%, stressful. 100%, I agree. Um, yeah. Anyways, I, music. <laughs> <laughs> good segue, good segue. Um, Flawless. I think... Not forced at all. I think on our podcast, we talk a lot about music. Like quite a bit about music and and not just in um not just in the sense of like oh we really like listening to this artist and we like you know we really like this style yeah. of music we we allude to the fact that we know a little bit more about music than like the average person does um yeah like we know more about it than people who were like never picked up an instrument yeah yeah yeah, yeah. see but here's the thing like after uh what was it like this past Thursday? Was it this past Thursday when I was sending you the, the yeah, child prodigy? Thursday, I think it was one. Yeah. yeah, it was Wednesday or Thursday. After after that night of me just like sad watching and hating myself for, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm a musician. Yeah, no. I we don't know shit about music, man. No, we, we don't. really don't. Um so uh this past Thursday I don't know why I did it, but I kind of just went on YouTube and I was searching just videos of child prodigies playing music. And um, it went from child prodigies just playing the piano to child prodigies playing the violin. Mm -hmm. And I kind of ended the night on, um, I'll send you the link later, but it's like this 10-year-old kid. Mm Mm-hmm who is just like shredding through the omnibook. Oh, jeez. And for for 
those of you that don't know what the Omnibook is, it's a book of all of the transcriptions of Charlie Parker's bebop solos from like his prime. So this is like pre-alcohol Charlie Parker. This is like heroin Charlie Parker. The best of Charlie Parker. Yeah, it, it was the Charlie Parker before he like got super depressed and jumped out of a goddamn window. This was like the, this was the Charlie Parker that like locked himself away in a uh, in an attic practicing scales because he went to like a, a rehearsal. It wasn't really a, even a rehearsal. It was more of like a jam session. And when he went up on stage, uh, well, at least this is how the story goes. He goes up on stage and when it was his turn to solo, he sucked. Like he was so bad that like people were laughing at him because of how bad he was. So then he, he goes, locks himself away and just practices scales for, I, I think it was like three months. Comes back. Damn. And it just kind of uh, made a name for himself and kind of became like, you know, the the king of bebop during that time. But there was this 10-year-old kid just chilling in his room with an alto sax that was like the size of his body because he's fucking 10 years old, shredding through ornithology. Or it might have been confirmation. It was one of those two. But it's a it's a classic. It's a jazz standard, you know? Mm. And Charlie Parker's solo on, I believe it was Confirmation, but Charlie Parker's solo on Confirmation is insane. And it, it wasn't even like, oh yeah, you know, like he could hit all the notes and like he really, really tried to squeak out the altissimo notes. And altissimo notes are um, notes on the saxophone where you're going above the physical range of the instrument of the, like the buttons that are already ah. on there. Right. So like you're hitting a note using pretty much just your embouchure just to push the pitch up to hit, you know, like a triple G. Through or just something. that much more like breath support. Yeah. But like he's hitting these notes, they're in tune, he's nailing everything. And I'm just sitting there like, bro, it it literally took me six months of work just to be able to hit the notes correctly to ornithology off of the same book. I'm sure he worked really Without, hard. Like, like I'm yeah. sure he worked really hard to get to that point, but I'm like, he's fucking 10. I was 18 when I attempted to learn ornithology. And by that point, I had already been playing saxophone for 10 years. Was that... Um... Was that like when you say just the notes, was that not including any of the emotion, not cleanly hitting the notes or um yeah, kind of it was like you know m mechanically, like technically, I was hitting all the uh, notes correctly, I was hitting them at the correct speed, but I wasn't mm -hmm. really following the phrase, I wasn't doing any of that the dynamics mm. This kid at age 10 was. Not only was he like mechanically gifted enough to be able to hit the right notes, the right fingerings at the speed, because mm -hmm. with bebop, 
for those of you that don't listen to jazz, is extremely fast. We're talking average speed of around 190, like 180 to about 240 beats per minute. If we're talking about a 4-4 time signature. Some of the stuff in the in the Omnibook goes up to around like 300. I didn't know that was something that was ever written. I mean, you I can go I've back seen and you like can, 210, but you can go back and you can listen to any of the recordings from that bebop era and everything is just really really fast. Cuz that was just the style of the music. Um but yeah, not only was this kid talented enough to be hitting all of the notes at, you know, that fast of a speed. But he's phrasing it exactly like how Charlie Parker did in the recordings. Mm. And it was, it's just mind-blowing because I don't... I mean, like, obviously there is a lot of natural talent that goes into that. Like, he... That kid has to have some advantage over, you know, the average person learning how to play that instrument. He just has to be right. able to like parse through the information faster. At least that's my Do my you... like hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, once you like study stuff like league, where it's like, oh yeah, no, you know, their reaction times are fucking stupid, and that's part of the reason that they can be that good, or whatever. Like it's all these weird mechanics that you never think about being something to do with genetics. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Oh well, yeah. I guess that makes sense when you really think about it. But I like thinking it's just like, oh, they're just better because they're better, and not this all this, all these random little ideas and habits. But um, when you said that he was able to hit everything with the same sort of cadence and emotion and everything as Charlie Parker, um, I think you pay attention more to like the genre and stuff as a whole than I do. Would you say that that is more sought after than being able to, like, being able to mimic the cadences of the greats accurately? Is that more sought after than being able to technically do everything but do it in their own way, in their own interpretation? That's at that same sort of skill level. No, because I know with visual art. You know, everyone's like, oh, that's cool, but you should do it in your own style. But I feel like, unless I'm mistaken, that with when it comes to music, when it comes to playing charts and songs and like trying to be at the same level of the greats, more people seem to want something as close to that as possible. That's a really hard, that's a hard question to answer because it depends on what you're trying to do. Like if you're just playing a Charlie Parker solo from or like from the Omnibook, then yeah, mm-hmm. it is much more sought after to be able to emulate Charlie. Mm-hmm. Like you know, not only just oh, I can hit these notes really fast, but like you're still getting that raspy tone. You can get your sound as close to his as possible for a recording. But I think music in general, um everybody kind of wants their own voice, like their own sound, because that's what sets you apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't the famous saying something like great art is, uh, what is it, stolen? 
or borrowed? I know there's some phrase like that, but I yeah, like okay. So I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is because of the way that music generally works inside of the world of jazz from my own personal experience, you're not going to be able to come up with a sequence of notes inside of an, like an improv solo that is completely unique. Like a, you know, a phrase or a, a phrase that you think that you came up with that sounds really cool. Someone else has probably already done it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same thing as like, you know, you can always draw inspiration on what the greats have done before you. It's mm-hmm. just a matter of like putting your own spin on it. Right. Playing it with your own unique style to make yourself um, noticeable. I think that's much more sought after. And I think it goes... I, I think it means even more if you're a classical soloist. Really? Because the way that classical music works, whatever is on the page, that's what you're playing. Right. You don't have the freedom that you do in a jazz standard where you just get 32 bars to solo. Mm, so okay, I see what you're saying. You can play the solo like with perfect technique. You can play it, mm-hmm. you know, like hitting every single note, getting everything in tune. But what sets apart, you know, a recording from uh, what sets apart a, a recording from like, you know, a high school senior that's just really, really good at the, the violin or the cello and fucking like Yo-Yo Ma is the emotions that they can draw out of their, their yeah. instrument. It's like that unique... Interpreting it as a whole and like phrases as a whole instead of just note by note for accuracy. Yeah. Because and having with, some sort of through with line enough that's... time, with enough time, any musician can play a piece accurately. Mm. But okay. it takes someone with a special, unique talent to be able to bring that piece to life. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I can. I see what you're yeah. saying. Because it's like, you know, everybody knows Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Not by name. Yeah. Like if I, I'm sure it's I one of those like it, Looney Tunes songs. I will send it to like, you and you'll be like, oh, okay, that's that's that that's Four Seasons. Yeah. But it's one of those songs that everyone listened to when they were still in their mom's stomach because Beethoven makes you smart. <laughs> Didn't work out for either of us. Huh? <laughs> but... It might have done something. I don't know yeah, what it, it did. I, it definitely didn't make either of us smarter. But it made us want to try instruments, maybe. Maybe. Um, but this goes into the the other videos that I was watching of um, child prodigy violinists. Mm. Um, there's this Singaporean girl. Her name is Chloe Chua. And uh, the video that I found was when she was 11. And I believe this was in 2018. And she was playing Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which is like... 
if you put it into context with other classical pieces, relatively easy. You know, um, most high school orchestra violinists can probably get it down if you give them about two months. Yeah. But her rendition of it just sounded different. And I can't put it into words. Like, it sounds so stupid. It sounds very, very pretentious when I have these conversations about music. Because it's just something that you just innately feel when you hear the music. Like, mm. you can't put it into words. It's just the way that she played it was just different. And you knew that she was just better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I, uh, like, I've... I was in orchestra for like a month as a trumpet player. So I didn't really know. It. Like that's the closest I've ever been to strings. Like I have no idea what talent is like really. But like watching her do her thing on that video that you sent yeah. of me. Or of her to me was just obscene. Yeah, it's like especially in high school, like when you see, um, did you see any? I think it was even in the commercials for the movie Soul that came out like last year. There was like the one kid oh. in the band or whatever who was actually decent, and they got into it and like stood up when it came to their solo, and all the other kids started laughing. Because when you're a kid and everyone's abandoned at one level, you know the people who stand out the most that are the best, you know you kind of see them kind of getting into it a lot, yeah. of, especially with the string players and stuff like that. And it's just kind of funny. And like, hey, this dude's just a fucking weirdo. <laughs> but like when you really sit back and like listen to it and try and take it in and like when someone's at that level of talent where like you actually like feel everything that's like going on or whatever, like you can feel exactly what they're trying to do with the phrasing of everything overall, as opposed to like, little like four measure segments or one measure segments or whatever. Like that's when like things start giving you goosebumps. Yeah. I think that's the biggest measure of like the, like the prowess of a musician. Are they able mm -hmm. to give you goosebumps? I know yeah. that's a very like, low bar to set but like and completely open to interpretation yeah, but like guaranteed there's people out there right now like if they're listening like what the fuck do you mean goosebumps like i just listen to music the fucking party it's yeah okay so i think it's i think it's extremely different when you're talking about pop music in comparison to like a classical piece because pop music oh. generally speaking like you're not going to the emotions that you feel when you hear a pop song or a, a hip hop song or something that's on the radio that's party music. You like you don't get taken through the same emotional journey as you do when you listen to a a symphony or like a jazz piece. It's like when you listen to I, when you listen to the Johnny Hodges solo in um, Sunset and the Mock Mockingbird, the saxophone solo. Mm -hmm. 
the first time that you hear that recording, you get goosebumps. And it, it's a super simple, like, eight-measure solo. But it's just the way that he stretches the pull into the D right in the beginning of the solo. Mm. It, like, it just elicits, I don't know, it just makes your skin crawl a little bit because it's so haunting. And I think that sort of has to do with, it's something that especially connects with people who have played the same instrument as you. Because if you have experience playing instruments and you know what it takes to sound good on those instruments, when you hear a certain level of skill on yeah. that thing that you've had the experience of like, dude, I don't know how to do that, but oh my God, that was, I don't know how they did that. And this, goes, that was back to, this goes back to that question that you opened up with of like, um, what is more sought after? You know, like being original or being able to emulate. And mm -hmm. I was talking about like, it, it all comes down to the context of the situation. I remember when we played Sunset and the Mockingbird in jazz band in high school. Mm -hmm. And um, it was like during that season that we were in jazz band together, I had my own solo piece that I had to practice a lot. But Did you pull out the soprano sax for that one? No. But I can okay. tell you that I worked so much harder on those like eight to ten measures to try to get the Johnny Hodges sound than I ever did for my own solo piece. Because it is so easy to... It's very, very easy for you to develop your own style because you kind of just start noticing what you're comfortable with. So mm. you can sort of you can sort of just expand on that and you, right. you make your own little niche thing. But when you're taken out of your comfort zone and someone is asking you, "Hey, I need you to sound like this other person." It you have to flip it's work. Yeah, you have to flip a switch in your brain. And you have to go, okay, I have to put myself into his shoes and I have to figure out why he chose to play those notes the way that he played it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think something else that's um, that sort of thing is, like I, I've seen that sort of thing in is... Uh, just acting. Oh yeah. Like when people when people try to like do interpretations of like famous performances and stuff like that, you know, that's especially for I, I think one of the things that uh, I saw it with the most was um when I worked in the theater at uh, community college, they did Romeo and Juliet, and I was like, of course. Like, what are the odds that the second I start working in a theater, they just happen to put on a product, whatever. But there was, like, you could tell that the director or whoever, like, came up with, the I think it was actually my boss might have come up with, like, the screenplay for it. And I think he had one of his friends, like, as the director or something like that. Um, Because there was, like, a bunch of, 
like pop culture references to kind of help the audience understand what was going on because everything is still done in Shakespearean, but you could really tell that all the actors knew exactly what they were going for. And because casual people don't understand Shakespearean English, they were like very much so physicalizing and like doing things to help kind of get across what they were saying. Yeah. Like lines that were supposed to be flirting and stuff like that, you know, they would like motion to and do things where it's like, oh, that's kind of what they're doing. That's what's going on here. Because when you're, you know, it's like music, when you're illiterate with a certain type of music or an instrument or whatever, you can be like, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. But like, yeah. Once you really have something like, and you get an idea of it, and then you can fully appreciate what's going on, it's like, oh my God, this is like so well done because even though I don't really get what the phrases are, because I there's only so much you can puzzle piece without like specific training for Shakespeare, they, everyone here has like an understanding and is doing their best to like communicate that through everything that isn't the spoken word to so that everyone that's here is on the same page yeah and everyone can fully appreciate and understand what's going on the way that i've always kind of viewed music is that to a certain degree it is a universal language because Mm -hmm. like for myself you know i i've been uh i've been bopping to that young k-pop for the past year or so right it's great. Uh-huh. K-pop's amazing. I don't understand a single thing that they're saying, but the music is super catchy. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it is a universal language because the way that music is, it can it can elicit emotion out of you regardless of if you understand the lyrics or not. Mm-hmm. But then you go into jazz and you go into classical music and that's kind of like the inside joke of musicians. You kind of just have to be a part of the in crowd in order for you to understand it. Mm. It can yeah. still elicit those same emotions, but that's our language. Right. That's the that's the language that we devoted our lives to learning. And I can't even say right. that because I gave up on music a while ago. Right. But like I have nothing but respect for classical musicians, jazz musicians that are still grinding now, you know, in in the field because mm-hmm. it is so fucking hard. Like, you have to work so fucking hard to maintain that level of excellence. Right. Because, you know, like, reading music is like riding a bike. You're never going to forget how to do it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the the actual physical act of playing your instrument, you put that down for two months, you become rusty. Your fingers don't work as fast as they used to. Your brain has to kind of recalibrate to be able to be. Your embouchure is fucked. Your embouchure is absolutely fucked for wind players. But, you know, for like string players, uh, where your hand is placed, that affects your tuning, especially once Mm. you get into the higher range of notes. Right. And like for piano players, the dexterity does kind of go away after a month if you don't touch it. Mm Mm-hmm. So, like, for these musicians that spend 30, 40 years playing in, like, symphonic orchestras, every single day is a grind. They're putting in, you know, 8 to 12 hours of practice a day. 
Right. And to a kid that was in band or a kid that was really into to music when you were in high school, that sounds like the dream. It's like, oh man, I get to travel the world and I get to play all of this music. But it's like, bro, it's stressful as fuck. Like you, you look at a it's symphony super orchestra. Competitive. Yeah, you look at a symphony orchestra, right? If you're looking at it from a strings perspective, you probably have like eight violin spots, maybe ten. Mm-hmm. You only have so many cello players, bass players, violas. And if you're going into the wind section for an orchestra, we're talking about one of each part. Yeah. Because you can't have the winds outnumbering the strings. Like, it's just, it's so competitive and it's so cutthroat. And it, like, it breeds really, really unhealthy competition. And um, I'm sure that if I stayed in the music program at Iowa, I would have felt the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just kind of like you're almost conditioned to believe that you have to step on other people in order for you to make it. Mm. And to a certain degree, that's kind of how it, it, it is in like the freelancing world too. Where right. like you have to kind of learn to be a little bit cutthroat and yeah, like yeah, I had audio teachers who were who would say to like, hey, like you know, it was before COVID, but he was saying like, go to like all these post production houses or whatever, <clears throat> like go to their websites, study the engineers, look at the work they've done, go in, ask questions, bring a friend. Don't bring a friend that's audio. Or like into audio or editing or anything like that because they're your competition. Yeah. You can think everything I'm saying is crazy. Go ahead. Don't do it. Someone's going to do it and they're going to be the ones that get the job. Yeah. And we've had stuff like that. We've had this conversation off camera so many times of like. Yeah. You have to like yourself comes before everyone else. There is no let me help you when you are trying to get your foot in the door and you Mm -hmm. feel like shit. It takes a special kind of someone to not feel like absolute shit uh, after like, you know, kind of fucking over a fellow filmmaker or a fellow voice actor. Right. But that is just something that you have to do in order for you to like get ahead in the career path. Yeah, I've I've heard when it comes to the voice acting and stuff that uh, you know sometimes someone will seek out a talent and the talent will do a read and I'm fairly certain that this comes from people who already like are safely in a career and they're not fighting to make it a career anymore. But once they're at that point where it's just like, if they realize that you know what I. You're asking me to do things that I can't do as well, but I know this other guy. Uh, you should give them a shot. Yeah. Like at that, at those higher levels and stuff, if you have that sort of reputation, if like you are known for doing certain things, but you know, the person casting the show doesn't know about you, but this other guy does and they look for that guy, there's a certain level of collaboration once you get there. And then that's, you know, not everyone's going to be that way, but it's nice to know that there's like that much of 
like a sort of looking out for each other yeah kind of deal i think there's a certain degree of, level uh, of professionalism i think there's a certain degree of camaraderie once you've already kind of stabilized it's, your career right yeah because in the beginning it was definitely like i'm not gonna recommend anybody else even if i know that they can do what yeah. they what the client is asking for i would push myself to learn how to do the thing in order to yeah. get that gig yeah um, i i think part of it too comes like when it comes to the voice acting specifically it, it if you look at it a certain way it still kind of is looking out for yourself because if they're asking to do you to do something that you can do but it's too stressful on your throat it's like hey listen yeah because you don't want a good gig but like you don't want to make a bad impression either where you're you're promising them like yeah i can do this but then you go in you suck and they're just like all right well we're never calling him again yeah or like you end up kneecapping your career because you didn't take care of your voice yeah. and take any of that into consideration and you're too short-sighted yeah um, like if you've heard Mark Hamill's Joker over the last 20 years, like it's, you can hear that voice is taking a toll on him. Yeah. 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 For like sure. it's real grumbly and raspy and everything now, which is why, you know, he was sick in the Arkham games and that like hearing that was some nasty shit, but, and that's, that's kind of why he's talking about retiring the character. Completely off topic, but kind of off topic. I think it's time for the Joker to be retired. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I don't think he should show up in anything for a good, like, 10 years yeah. at least. Um, with Hamill... At least not in, cinema, in, not in cinemas. Yeah, like, with Hamill and... Um, why am I blanking on his name? Jesse, help me. Dark Knight. Dark Knight Joker. That that was. Oh, do you mean the Dark Knight movies? Yeah, sorry. Um, Ledger, Heath Ledger, with Heath Ledger and Mark Hamill. I think and now Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, and Joaquin Phoenix, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm glad that you pushed me to go see that movie. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, that was a good one. Because like. I I don't make it like I don't try to hide the fact that I hate anything superhero related. That was the same with Phoenix. Like before he yeah. got cast, he was like, "This is all stupid. Why wouldn't they just do like focus on instead of making teams and everyone shows up and all this shit? Why don't they take one character and do like a character study with them? But see how and why it is the reason. Yeah, but like. Just they in tick. general, even if it even if it is something like the Joker, like you have to basically pull my teeth out to get me to sit down and watch it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't I don't try to hide the fact that I, I absolutely hate Marvel movies, anything DC related, but mm-hmm. the Joker was really fucking good. If I were to ever do a superhero-esque movie or something that existed in the world of superheroes, the Joker was like the perfect representation of it. Mm-hmm. Because it is, a, it, it is a character study. That's all it is. Yeah. 
you're seeing the descent of a man into madness. Right. Like, that was incredible. Yeah. And they did a lot of... The fact that it was Joaquin Phoenix also made it super dope, too, because he's a really, really good actor. Yeah, I think that was the first time I had seen him in something, because I'd never seen Gladiator or... um, What was the other thing he was in? I almost said Sweeney Todd. That's Johnny Depp. (laughs) You're getting me back for the Christmas episode, aren't you? (laughs) No. That shit almost went through my nose. That was really bad. (laughs) This is carbonated too, Jesse. That hurt. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was... (laughs) I thought it was coffee. Mm, Okay. But, uh... Yeah, carbonation's definitely gonna hurt worse. Yeah, you should you but, should also check out The Master. That's another Phoenix yeah, movie. Uh with Paul I think it was directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh, her was the other big one that he was in. Her is really seen. good too. I do yeah. I really liked her. The more but, like the the further into the future that we're getting with how how like quickly um how quickly technology is evolving. We're just slowly and we're just we're just creeping towards her territory so much faster than I, I really want. Mm. We got fuckers in Japan getting married to like 3DS waifus. The 3DS waifus. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm solid, man. That's a hard that's a hard headline to forget about. Yeah, it's fucking wild. But I know something else that was um I don't remember a whole lot of the specifics and I, I saw the movie before I really started paying attention to this sort of thing, but I know the score for that movie was also very, was held in very high regard. Like the use of like the cello and stuff as motifs throughout the movie and using it sparingly, but like, you know, as motif of like, I forget if, when exactly it was, but I think it was just a like change or like specific moments where he like inched closer towards like just losing it. Yeah. Cause it was um only in scenes like the dancing bathroom scene and but it was haunting. Yeah. And like it it never it was never overwhelming and it's we've talked about soundtracks and stuff in movies but it's one of those things where anytime it happened you knew it and you were just kind of waiting for it but it wasn't like a whole melody it was like two measures of just like that haunting cello sound and it i i can't even remember exactly how to like describe the like emotion or whatever behind it but you knew it was something significant was going on when when you heard that and it didn't need to be you know blasting brass instruments like the star wars opening or the avengers motif or whatever yeah but or even like the harry potter theme it was just completely simple and grounded and just a like a very simple way to be able to really make sure like you noticed that this was here 
I think it comes down to the entire production crew's intention behind music. Because yeah. that is something that is lost in a lot of cinema, where yeah. music is an afterthought. You're using it mm-hmm. to fill this space. You're not you, like you're not using the music to do anything. It's right. simply there because you needed to fill the silence and you didn't just want it to be room noise. Right. Or just like background footsteps. Yeah. Like, God help you, you psychopath, if you wanted to fill up the background noise with just footsteps. Doing them on their own is enough work. To to a certain degree, I think a lot of movies do fail in that regard of using music. Because a lot of the times, you know, especially if you're watching horror movies, they try to give you the cue, right? Right. Like the suspenseful music kicks on, this is the cue for... Uh, the murder coming out of the bathroom or something. But yeah. it's still so simplistic. Like, mm-hmm. you you can tell that, like, the music that they chose for that scene was still just an afterthought, where they're like, oh, we just need some suspenseful strings playing in the background. Yeah. You know, to, to kind of, like, lead up to the point where, like, there's the jump scare, and then it the entire the entire orchestra just plays one staccato note, and then the murder starts happening. Right. There and had, it's like, you can tell when something is sort of thrown in for like a specific moment. But when like the entire score for a movie has like an idea behind it and tropes throughout all of these different things that you can pick up on, you're not going to pick up on it the first time you watch it. Yeah. Like... And that's a thing with movies in general. That's why people, especially like big movie people, watch and rewatch movies because there's always something you miss. With scores, especially, like you won't notice it until you start going back. Like certain scores will make you want to go back and listen, and you'll listen to like the songs from the big moments of the show or the movie that like we're at, like the really cool fight scene and stuff like that. But once you listen to like the full thing with all the like little 30 second songs that might've played like, Oh, this was when they like found the crystal. But like once you start listening to that in its entirety and start piecing things together, like, Oh no, this, this sort of thing happens every time you start putting together the more discreet motifs and light motifs for, ideas in the film for characters and stuff like that and that is when you know that it's like it's like we, what we were talking about with Christmas where uh, and Die Hard and stuff where Christmas is a character at that point the movie is a character that is like telling you the story on its own and it's when something pulls it off well it's incredible yeah I know you have an example to bring up of that, but like the last time I remember being really, really impressed by music use inside of a inside of a movie was probably Baby Driver. Oh yeah, that that was like I've brought that up with some of my teachers too, and they're like, "Yeah, no, the whole 
movie is just a music video. It's an hour and a half long music video. Yeah. And like the thing is, you can tell how thought out it was, especially in yeah. the, the shootout scene with tequila. Yeah. But even in like the, the opening with bell bottoms, it's like yeah, but the, the key change happens when like the different uh, police sirens yeah, show like, up. That's and the dope, right? sirens. That's dope. Yeah. Bro, they literally choreographed gunshots to the fucking offbeats of tequila. Do oh, you have I any know. idea, like, like the logistical nightmare of planning that to shoot, like being like telling mm. your actors, okay, you have to shoot on the end of beats one, two, and three. You're making a lot of assumptions about your actors' capabilities of like counting, which okay, right. hold on, hold on, I'm gonna do the bit really quick. I know it sounds really stupid, and I know it sounds very, very simple to be like, oh yeah, it's one, two, three, and four. Let me just tell you how many fucking times the both of us have just missed the downbeat. You have no idea how hard it is to count to four. My junior year, the band director was retiring, and the entire trumpet section missed a downbeat. Mr. Measure, <clears throat> we restarted on stage at the recorded performance. His last fall concert, we restarted as the top performing band at the school. That shit was bad. That is a story time that we are going to have to do at some point. Not, yeah. not today. But seriously, no, though, like, no. just the amount of patience that you would have to have as a director to pull off that scene was insane because yeah. you know. And then you got to make sure, too, that all the people in post are also capable of doing it. Like, you want the guns, you know, lighting up in post to that same rhythm, beat, and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Like that was very, very impressive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you can you can go ahead and talk about your uh, your whole thing. Yeah. So while it's still uh, like culture, culturally, culturally relevant. relevant and everything, um, arcane because we have not talked about league in a while either. Yeah. Um, I don't want to get too into it because I know you're interested in the show and you haven't seen too much of it. So I'm going to keep it fairly vague, but kind of highlight a lot of the things that they do right with the score of the show. So one of the one of the big themes, and I'm just going to like kind of do a pretty soft plug uh, at the top. If you have not ever played League of Legends, you don't have to. It's a show that's on netflix it's nine episodes they're like an hour long each it's done really well and you don't need any any sort of knowledge of the game or the lore or anything to appreciate it um it's one of the biggest themes in the movie is um a dichotomy it's a story about two sisters it's a story about two cities um that 
start and end in two very different places. And um, the idea of that sort of like duality is uh, brought up in so many different and clever ways. But um, you can hear that in the soundtrack with music that's like kind of varies on just the location. You can hear like what songs are being played in Piltover, this city of progress that's all marble and gold and magic versus the Undercity where everything is sort of the slums and everything's kind of like slapdash together. Um, let's see. Yeah, so Piltover is the city of progress. They've like always focus on innovation. All the rich people uh, live up there and they're safe, have access to blimps and all this stuff. It's very, you know, majestic. Everything here is, looks regal with all of this gold and everything there. And the music that you hear up there is all pristine and uh, full orchestras, all very elegant sounding. Everything any significant musical moment there is highlighted with more of that sort of sound where it just sounds like these people are at like the top of the societal food chain. Uh, they're well off, they're professional, they want everything precise and done well and elegantly. Um, and then you get to the undercity of Zon and some of the songs there, um, when you're first introduced to it, there's a song called um, Welcome to the Playground. And it starts with these sounds of just these like industrial sounds where it sounds like different people in different places of the room are just like hitting different kinds of pieces of metal using different materials. And that sort of thing just, when you see that and we're, when you hear that, and you see this as the setting of this city that's just everything stacked on everything. Uh, the people ruled by crime bosses and stuff like that. You hear that reflected in the soundtrack. And just sort of that duality again of just like this. Like when you hear something that sounds like this, you just know that it involves people from here or that it's taking place in the Undercity, or Zon. Uh, and it's something that they keep going. And in moments like in the first act, when you have the police officers called enforcers that come down into uh, the Undercity to talk with like their leaders to find uh, who like blew up a building, you get this, you start that song starts with something that sounds like a woodblock just being like knocked on it gets and it starts building like this tension very slowly and surely and then it the release it's it's one of those like 30 second songs that i was talking about and as it builds and builds tension it sort of in less than 10 seconds kind of diffuses into like a not a completely like just like sigh of relief but it's like okay, you know, like, it sounds like those two ideas, like, came to some sort of agreement in a negotiation scene. And it's like, that's, like, to pull that off and to write that, 
is a really cool way to incorporate both of those things meeting when those kind of characters are meeting. So having that reflected in the music, like it's just like they had the foresight to have all of these ideas heard as well as seen. And it just emphasizes and like makes those moments hit better. Even when like, like that moment, that music is a 30 second song. It's very much in the background. You don't notice it until you're listening to this uh, score all the way through. And you can hear that that's what was happening on the screen. And uh, that those are like examples of just like the soundtrack ref reflecting ideas throughout the entire show. In other movies, um, like Into the Spider-Verse, uh, they play a lot with motifs of individual characters. And um, a lot of what I uh, learned is from a channel called Sideways. He has a whole video on it. Uh, he actually knows what he's talking about. I would uh, check out his video on uh, the Spider-Verse. But to sort of break things down simply, um, Miles, the main character, um, listens to... Uh, you hear him listening to music throughout the movie and he has his own sort of uh diegetic music where like you can hear uh the music that he's listening to his headphones fall off you don't hear the music anymore you know that this is something that uh is associated with his character specifically and then when you meet the original spider-man he has this sort of like hero triumphant motif and each of the other spider people that you meet kind of have their own little take on it but it follows the same like chord structure and like pattern. So it's like the motif of the hero. And then by the time of the movie that everything comes to a head and the, the scene of Miles jumping off the building that everyone saw in all the promotional material, they cross and lay over the score of like what's up danger with the motifs of uh, the spider people to sort of make it so that this is the moment where Miles fully incorporated being a hero into like his identity. You hear both of those things happening at the same time. Because even on like on the soundtrack itself, it doesn't have any of that spider hero motif to it. It's these horns just going up an octave. If you listen to just the soundtrack, you don't get it. But when you uh you don't hear that. They don't have the horns in that on the soundtrack. But when you're watching the movie and you see that scene, the idea of blending those two things together for that scene to, again, reemphasize that this is the moment of this individual incorporating the like uh, transformation that he's gone through and like combining those two things into the one song, it's brilliant. It's super cool, um, and. Yeah, I, it's the thought that has to go into something like this is just incredible. And that's like, that's what we mean when we say like, you can tell when thought has been put into the soundtrack. And it's not just like, oh yeah, you know, like this will go here because this is hype and this sounds hype. Like when you have these like more accomplished, 
they're not even complex ideas, but they're just simple ways of reinforcing um, stuff behind the characters in order to better tell the story. The, the soundtrack emphasizes the ideas of the story of these movies, and it's done incredibly well. Check out that sideways video. He does a way better job of explaining it than I just did. Everybody give a round of applause to the guest speaker, uh, Jesse Healy, <laughs> for his TED Talk today. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Oh, actually, um, speaking of uh, guest speakers, I did have this. It was fair use. I checked it out. Don't worry. Because I know that's something that we were afraid of. Ah, fuck. Okay, well, um, while Jesse tries to get that sorted out, let's just have a conversation, guys. How are you guys doing? How was your Christmas? How was your new year? Hope it was well. Um, yeah, we had, we had a couple COVID scares right before Christmas. That sucked a lot. Um, a lot of it was spent uh, quarantining between myself and my family. And, um, yeah, it was quite uncomfortable, but, uh, we're, we're all safe. We all tested negative and it was, it was fine. Um, oh, and look at that. Jesse is, uh, <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> well, hello there, Eric. It is Tommy Laren and I've been sent by Jesse to not only wish you a very happy holiday season, a Merry Christmas, but also a happy birthday. I know you also just recently started a podcast, so a shout out to you in the Golden Hour Coffee Cast. Listen, as someone who's hosted shows for quite a few years now, I can tell you the best thing you can do and the most wonderful key to success is just be authentically you, be genuine, outwork everybody, and just always make sure that you speak your beliefs and hold your convictions to the utmost and paramount. So that is my advice to you. Never change, never look for views, and never do anything that's not genuine to you in order to get views. That's the biggest piece of advice I could pass along. But I hope you have a very, very happy birthday, a very Merry Christmas, congratulations, and here's to a great year of success. God bless you, Eric. Take care. <laughs> I had to fucking put together a bullshit presentation on this shit just to get this recorded and on the podcast. You are a fucking legend. Okay, how much money did that cost? Because if it's a lot, I'm going to pay you back for it. No, no, no. We had, we had people pitch in. It's fine. That is so fucking funny. That is so funny. Holy shit. Oh, dude, the fact that you ended it with guest speaker, I was like, oh, my God, this is it. <laughs> oh, my God, I am actually she speechless. She shouted out the podcast. I am speechless. <laughs> this is the one time where you guys committed way harder than I ever did do a bit. <laughs> like, so much harder. I thought this was just going to be like a, oh, haha, like. <laughs> the, the joke just ended no you guys act fucking mad lads all of you thank you 
That is the that is easily the second best uh, birthday present I've ever gotten because um, this sits at my desk and Stephen A. Smith just stares at me disapprovingly when I don't get my work done. Like, sorry. Oh my god, you guys are fucking crazy. Oh man. When you brought up Tommy Laren earlier, I was like, should I no, no, I gotta wait. I can't just force it. We'd have to change windows and it'd be a whole mess and like whatever. I don't want to deal with it. Just do what I originally planned. Now you understand why I was pushing for being able to show the screen share. <laughs> It was all for this. I slapped together that fucking Google <laughs> slash you, thing. You gave a whole ass TED talk <laughs> for a joke. <laughs> if you were this committed in school, you would have had like a 4.0 GPA graduating college. Yeah, hey, I had like a 3.6. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Holy shit. <laughs> I was going to go on like a whole, like, oh man, we should talk about Miyazaki's music. Cause like, we're already running pretty long on this podcast, but like, nah, I can't top that. This is, this is just kind of how we're going to end this podcast. <laughs> Um, shout That's outs, fair. shout outs to all of the homies that chipped in money to make one of my <laughs> dreams come true. Um, I can honestly tell you that I did not expect that at all. Oh my God. That's insane. Um, but thank you to all of you for tuning in to another episode of the golden hour coffee cast. Uh, Holy shit, Jesse just fucking take us out. I can't. Holy shit. Alrighty, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Golden Hour Coffee Cast this week. Uh, Spotify and audio only listeners, please go ahead and give that YouTube video a, uh, a watch. You will be able to see Tommy Laren giving us uh, a shout out in uh, all of her forehead's glory. Um, so be sure to check us out there and uh we will see you guys next time possibly maybe eventually soon with guests but we'll figure that out as we go along also please like and subscribe thanks guys we'll see you guys next week <laughs> later <laughs>